secret bunker somewhere outside of Nashville, Tennessee. This is the award-winning podcast, Reality. Good evening, everyone, and thanks for listening tonight. My name is Sandman, and I'll be your guide through this strange realm of ghosts, cryptids, UFOs, aliens, conspiracy theories, and other unsolved mysteries that I like to call parareality. Well, you know what? It is my favorite time of the year, and of course, that's Halloween season. I got my Halloween decorations all ready to go up. I was going to put them up today, and uh, then Mrs. Sandman was like, no, you can't put them up today because we have yard work to do over the weekend. And I'm like, oh, damn it, woman. You sucked all the joy and happiness that I had in my life, just sucked it right out, just within a 30-second time span. So uh, no Halloween decorations up yet, but I'm going to have to delay it a day or so. It's going to come, though. It's going to happen this weekend. I guarantee it. But what I am doing is uh, putting together my Halloween movie playlist. And then uh, next thing I'm going to do is get a list of all the haunted houses that I want to go to this season because we have some really good ones up here in Nashville. Uh, the the One of the best ones is Nashville Nightmare. And I go to that every year, and it never disappoints. Um, there's also Beast House, which uh, is pretty good. And then uh, there's one that is run by um, uh, the Full Moon uh, Tattoo Place. I don't know. What, I don't know. What, I don't know. Tattoo Parlor, Full Moon Tattoo. Um, anyway, this guy is, uh, he's been, um, He's a local tattoo artist, obviously, but he, he actually owns a old movie theater, and they've taken half of the movie theater and turned it into a haunted house. And the other part of it is a tattoo shop and a movie theater where they show, like, old horror movies and stuff like that. It's, it's fantastic. And this guy is uh, well-known in the Nashville community, especially the horror community. Uh, he does a um, uh, the full moon tattoo and horror convention just about every year. Uh, of course, he didn't do it 2020 because of the stupid COVID-19 going around. Um, but, uh, he, he's also an independent filmmaker, has made a few films here in the Nashville area, and just like really beloved in the, the Nashville independent uh, movie-making community and uh, he um, employs a couple of uh, friends of uh, my wife who help him run his his haunt every year so we get a uh, an inside um, you know track into that haunted house and it's uh, it's very nice I'm um, it's, it's not as good as Nashville Nightmare I, I will give Nashville Nightmare their props they are the best one in Nashville but uh, the full moon was pretty good, too. So, yeah, so can't put up my decorations just yet. But uh, getting my list of haunted houses, I'm going to go see all in the old head here and uh, get my Halloween movie playlist together. I think I'm I think this year I'm probably going to uh, mainly stick to the classics. I love classic universal monster movies. Dracula, Frankenstein, the Wolfman. Creature from the Black Lagoon, The Invisible Man. I own all those in that uh, that they had they put out. I don't know, ten or twelve years ago, or how long it's been in the, uh, the was it the Masters series, and uh, I I man, I just I just love those, and I'm probably gonna stick heavily to those this year, and maybe do a I don't know do a slasher movie or two, and hey, you know, um, on uh, well. The weekend, this weekend, because this is uh, the actually I'm this this is I'm pre-recording this, so uh, you're gonna hear this on when you're hearing this is uh, October the Friday, October the second, and this weekend is the 40th anniversary weekend of the original Friday the 13th, and it's playing in movie theaters this weekend, and I'm definitely gonna go see that. And if you have never seen Friday the 13th, 
the original, on the big screen, you owe it to yourself to find out if that's playing in your area and you need to go. And that's my recommendation for, for, your, for your movie entertainment this weekend. So, yeah, so I'm getting Halloween. Love it, getting ready for it. And, you know, this time of the year also means that it's time for me to get away from all the conspiracy theories that I've been talking about on the podcast this season and get back to talking about some scary stuff. I've been so wrapped up in the conspiracies lately that I've almost completely forgotten about my roots what I started this show out to be. So I want to get back to that at least for just just a little while. So on tonight's journey into the realm of parareality, I'm going to take you, my loyal listeners, on a journey to something that used to be a dark and scary place. It used to scare the hell out of adults and children alike, giving them nightmares and making them sleep with crucifixes and causing them to hang garlic above their windows. But somehow all of that changed And people are no longer afraid. And what I'm talking about are vampires. I'll be taking you on a journey to look at the changing vampire and how they've gone from fiendish ghoul to modern-day heroes, at least as far as Hollywood's concerned anyway. And then I'll tell you about some real-life vampires. And, of course, to learn the whole story, you'll have to turn on, tune in, and find out. However, before we begin tonight's journey, let me tell you how you can contact me here at the podcast. There are several ways that you can do it, and here they are. First, you can email me. My email address is sandman at parareality.com. That's sandman at parareality.com. Second, you can find me on Facebook by going to my parareality page. That's uh, www.facebook.com slash parareality. Um, third, you can follow me on Twitter. My username on Twitter is at Radio. That's at Radio. And lastly, you can always call the show at 615-692-1170 and leave me a message on the studio line. Uh, just remember that if you leave a message on the studio line that you are giving me permission to play your comment back on the podcast. So if you do not want me to do that, you need to let me know somewhere in your message, hey, don't play this back on the podcast. I screen every every uh, call, which is not a lot, uh, that I, I get before I put it on the air. And uh, if you tell me anywhere in there, I don't want, to, don't want you to air this. I won't. And uh, if you happen to leave me your your full name or give me a, an email address or, or a phone number or whatever, any kind of personal information that you leave, I will not uh, air that either. I always edit that out. I may leave your first name in there, but I will not air full names. I will not uh, air email addresses or any other form of contact, so you can uh, feel free to uh, safely leave me a message on the studio line. And that number to call, once again, is 615 692 one one seven zero. Now I'm always looking for interesting stories for the podcast. So if you've got a story you'd like to get on the show, if you'd like to get on the air, tell it to me over the voicemail. I think there's a three minute time limit. So if you run out of time, call back and just pick up where you left off. If you got to do it two or three times, hey, that's cool. So those are all the different ways you can get in touch with me. Let me go over them again real quickly. Email is sandman at parareality.com. Find me on Facebook by looking for Parareality on Facebook. That's facebook.com slash parareality. You can always find me on Twitter. My handle, my username is at Radio. That's at Radio. And call the studio line and leave me a message, 615-692-1170. And now it comes to that time of the show where I get to read some fan mail. If you'll remember a couple of episodes ago, I devoted the entire show, the entire podcast to answering fan mail because I'd had so many that I hadn't been able to get around to and just wanted to get those answered. 
And so, uh, last last episode, I did not answer any any emails. However, I want to get back to it, and uh, I have a an email from longtime listener of the show, Kasima, and she is writing me in reference to the uh, Piper and Mason comments that I had. Uh, it was an email that I was answering on the the email show, the Ask Sandman episode a couple of episodes ago. And if uh, you guys remember that, I got uh, a couple of comments on my old website that I didn't even know uh, you could still do that anymore. And uh, it was uh, from people with the names Piper and Mason, and it was both regarding chemtrails. It was really, really weird. And so... I was saying, you know, that I didn't really think there was anything to it, but I was just also commenting on how really weird it was. And uh, I asked you guys if, if, you know, you could help me out, if you could do some research, help me research, because I kept running into a dead end. So this is in reference to the Piper and Mason, and this comes from listener Kasima, and she writes, Hey, I've been researching the Piper and Mason comments. Both have ties back to Washington State. I looked at names names meaning and numerology they aren't coordinates I checked most are in the middle of the ocean so that's interesting I found Piper Torres means flute player towers and Piper C.O. Tacoma Piper Cotoma means flute player mutual go beyond Mason Walker means builder forest keeper or Freemason Forest Keeper. I found that to be very interesting, guys. And Mason MF Fremont Builder uh, means builder uh, or Freemason. Uh, Minnesota, Mongolia, Minute are one million Newtons and Journey Protection. That's really weird with all this numerology stuff that she got. But then she says, uh, she concludes, it says, uh, I figured after doing about an hour or two of researching, it was most likely spam, still very interesting. Thanks, Kasima, for doing that. That was Man, that was great for someone to take the time to uh, try to do some research and looked up some meanings from numerology. I think that is great, and I really appreciate that. Um, So, yeah, I'm glad that you came to the same conclusion that I did, which is, you know, spam. I don't know what they were trying to accomplish there. It was um, not very well thought out, not very well executed. But it was more than likely spam. So uh, I appreciate you, Kasima, for uh, helping me out with that. That was great. Thank you so much. And now it is time, everybody, to get on with the show. By the way, if you've got uh, something you want to uh, email the show, if you've got a comment or anything like that, just gave you all the ways you can get in touch with me. That's sandman at parareality.com. Email me. Let me know what you think. Sandman at parareality.com. All right. Let's get on with tonight's episode of the ever-changing vampire. If you're a horror movie fan like I am, chances are you have a favorite vampire movie. And for me, you can probably guess just based on my comments earlier, it's the original Universal Studios masterpiece, Dracula starring the great Bela Lugosi at his best, as far as I'm concerned. I like it because it's pretty much the original vampire movie that spawned a, a total horror subgenre, unlike all of the others. But then again, most all movies about vampires are unlike all the others, right? At least that's how they're, that's how they're built. So are vampires nightmarish? blood-crazed killers, or are they something different like a romantic superhuman with a conscience? Well, the vampire has simultaneously fascinated, repelled, and terrified us for around a century since the first screen appearance of Count Orlock in the cult 1922 horror movie Nosferatu. Now, that is actually the original vampire movie, when I said Dracula was was the original vampire movie, I mean it's like what modern day vampire movies have it's are kind of like modeling themselves over. Nosferatu was completely different, 
And there's never really been, as far as I'm concerned, a great remake of Nosferatu. And with today's technology, with uh, computerized graphics and green screen, screen technology and all that, there, there really should be. It's just getting a, a good script, I think. So, uh, of course, the most infamous of all was who I just talked about for a few minutes was Bram Stoker's creation, the repulsive Count Dracula. He was a terrifyingly alien-like character who's generated just countless numbers of movies and books and TV shows and online fan clubs and, and you name it. But over the last few decades, really, Things are changing in vampire land as far as Hollywood is concerned. These demonic beings are in the process of being reinvented, of course, with a lot of help from us admiring humans. Deformed bloodsuckers with with long nails and rancid breath who've left generations of moviegoers cowering in their seats have totally been transformed into something completely different, the, just a complete 180. Vampires are now just like these super attractive, like superhuman beings. They have a conscience. They seem to be torn between their, their repulsive means of existence by sucking blood and, and the realization that drinking this blood, this blood of the innocent is, well, it's, it's, it's a criminal act as well as immoral. So think about Edward Cullen and Bella Swan of Stephanie Meyer's Twilight series or other, like, sexed-up vampires from, um, let's say, um, True Blood from HBO, that series that was a few years ago. Bill Compton, Eric Northman, uh, the vampire queen Sophie Ann LeClerc, and Pam Ravenscroft, and... They're from uh, Charlene Harris's uh, TV series, The Southern Vampire Mysteries. So you've got all of these sexy-type vampires that are just, a lot of them have this, they're conflicted because, oh, you know, I, I want to live, I want to stay alive, I want to be stay immortal, so I have to drink the, this blood. And But, oh, my God, what's it doing to my soul? Do I even have a soul? I'm killing people. That's not right. And vampires aren't supposed to be that. They're, like I said, deformed, long-haired, long-fingernailed, blood-sucking creatures in just this hollow shell with no soul, and they stink, and their breath is rancid, and there's nothing sexy about these vampires at all. So what's going on here? Hollywood, and as well as just authors and screenwriters and just uh, us because of because of us because of the way that we want to portray the vampire vampires have been undergoing a major makeover since the early 1990s today's vampires aren't just human in character but they're they're elegant they're super attractive they're, they're beautiful, they're gorgeous, sexy, they got all these superhuman powers, and they've got a moral compass as well. They're looking for love, they're expressing a romantic need to find a soulmate, to better their world, they're trying to find their way in the human universe, and trying to oppose their own demonic and evil natures by fighting hard to overcome this desire this overwhelming desire to drink blood and survive off of the living. The older, more traditional vampires were unashamed of this. They, they were just like unabashedly ashamed bloodsuckers who weren't afraid to kill and never concerned themselves with this human nonsense like morals and ethics. And go back to the film that I was talking about, the one that is the true original, the one that spawned them really all, Nosferatu. And this vampire, Nosferatu, was portrayed as a repulsive, supernatural creation. He was ugly. He was completely alien-looking. 
He was dangerous. He was just decrepit and deformed, and he had long fangs and big pointy ears and long fingernails and long fingers to go along with him. And this type of portrayal of the vampire lasted a long time because it was more of a true and accurate portrayal of the legend of the vampire. But it changed around the end of the 20th century and and the start of the 21st century. And you can see this by looking at films like uh, the Francis Ford Coppola uh, Dracula, which I am a fan of. I really like that movie. But Dracula in this movie was like a, a... he was like a half-demon, half-human, terrifying character. But at the same time, he was also a romantic. He also longed for the human things in life. And this was a big change. And then you have Interview with the Vampire, who had two like uber-sex symbols at the time, uh, Brad Pitt and um, Tom Cruise. And this was another step forward, and even though the the book that it was that it was uh, based on by the same name was written by Anne Rice all the way back in the seventies. The film they didn't make it until the nineties, but the novel that Anne Rice wrote was more of a romantic vampire type novel and had these characters, these good-looking vampire characters who had a moral compass and were not decrepit and foul-smelling and and alien-looking and and hollow, empty shells. You know, they, she portrayed them as having um, a, a, a moral compass. I keep going back to it. Now, these vampires were very different. And in that movie, Interview with a Vampire, one of them was definitely the the precursor of the vampire heroes of the 21st century. And I'm talking about Brad Pitt's character, Louis. He, he, he wasn't a like a complete hero of the story, but he was he was having doubts about the morality of vampirism. And then after that, Change started happening really quickly. Vampires started to acquire a backstory so we could identify with them. And this leads us all the way up to the most recent, which would be the Twilight shit. (laughs) Um, What I find fascinating uh, about the change when you, when we talk about Twilight is the, is the Edward Cullen vampire. He's really concerned about the soul. He's a bit of a philosopher, but he's also uh, an immortal teenager because he was turned into a vampire when he was only 18. But I think in the books and in the movies, he's like 180, almost 200 years old. Yet from the perspective of us, the, the, the person who's watching the movie or reading the book, he's a very handsome young man who seems to be very human, and he seems to be more moral than a lot of the actual humans around him. And we've come completely 180 from what the vampire traditionally was supposed to be portrayed as. And it's really about Hollywood reflecting the changes in modern society. I see a change in the Western world in terms of greater acceptance, understanding, and empathy with the concept of being different. These days, there's an increasing acknowledgement that in itself, being different doesn't have to be alien or frightening or bad in any way. It's just different in and of itself, just different. And the vampire is increasingly being portrayed as a hero rather than a villain in a complete reversal of the role of the traditional vampire. They're becoming the heroes rather than just being the villains of the movie or the book or the television show or what have you. 
Now, obviously, this isn't making everyone happy, and I think I would have to be included in that camp. There are vampire purists, and I think I would probably be considered one of them, and these vampire purists strongly oppose this transformation because they hold to the concept of the vampire as being more demonic, more dangerous, non-human, and they're saying that a supernatural creature is different than a human being is, and I have to say that that's true. But in today's version of the vampire, we still have them being humanized and the vampire creatures being introduced into traditional family values. Suddenly we have these gorgeous, beautiful, sexy female vampires like Catherine Pierce and uh, Elena Gilbert from The Vampire Diaries. Uh, You look at Bella from The Twilight Saga and... uh, there's even uh, the, the, the cartoon uh, Transylvania, which I, I, I loved that, that cartoon. But Mavis, I think was the, the, uh, the young female's name. Uh, she's, you know, this strong, beautiful, gorgeous female vampire. And these female vampires are portrayed as startlingly, starting, I mean, they're just so just strikingly beautiful and They're powerful, as powerful as the male vampires, but still accepting human traditions and family values in terms of gender. So, in effect, these vampire women subconsciously decide to adopt human conventions, and they don't appear to be as strongly feminist as you would think they would be. There's a return to traditional gender roles when it comes to stereotyping of all this, even though these are very powerful female vampires. And that's actually one of the beautiful things about this horror subgenre. As the times change and societal fears evolve, so does the monster. Like Dracula, when, when that movie came out in 1931, people feared all that was foreign and unknown. And when Hammer Films started with their Dracula series from the late 50s to the late 70s, Dracula became a charismatic sex icon, thanks in a large part to the sexual revolution and Alfred uh, Kinsey's sex studies, and also because Christopher Lee was at that time considered a very uh, sexy vampire. He was very uh, passionate in the role, even though he, if you ever watched those movies, he didn't have a lot of, a lot of lines. Most of his stuff was snarling and baring his fangs and running around with his cape billowing out and, and uh, pursuing women. And this, he kind of like sexualized the vampire in this horror series, this, excuse me, this Hammer series of, of, of Dracula, because he was chasing women. And you never saw him actually have sex with a woman, but it was implied a lot that he had sex with women. There was a, a quite a fair amount of nudity in these movies. And the women uh, that were bearing their breasts and were the objects of Dracula's you know, desire were very beautiful. And it was heavily implied that, you know, Dracula was not only sucking their blood, but, you know, doing other things to them as well. And when Joel Schumacher came out with The Lost Boys in 1987, that's when you had all of these these teen movies that were being churned out, like Breakfast Club, Fast Times at Ridgemont High, 16 Candles, Ferris Bueller's Day Off. Um, These were all the rage at that point in time in the 70s. So you had all these, these teenage movies about teenagers going through teenage things and having teenage problems. And, of course, these movies were popular with teenagers. I know I was one. I saw these movies, and 
the Lost Boys fed right into that because now you have these teenagers going through teenage stuff like, you know, oh, having their, their sexuality blossoming right there in front of them, not knowing what to do with these raging hormones. Uh, you, f- A lot of times teenagers feel like no one understands them. And, well, what better purse, what better group to put the, the teenagers going through that with than the vampires? Because they're all, according to Hollywood, vampires are all like that, right? And while there are common tropes in vampire films, which more or less revolve around the basic lore of vampiric survival, the genre seems to rise from its coffin with newly with a newly evolved identity, escaping the bowels of its dusty lair to wreak havoc once again on its new object of desire. It's going to be really interesting to see how the vampire archetype changes as we head into the 2020s. But if the last hundred years of its cinematic representation has taught us anything, it's that it will continue to change and evolve in ways that are sure to be controversial if nothing else. So that is the literary vampire and how the literary vampire has changed. And when I say literary, I'm also referring to, obviously, the Hollywood vampire. Maybe I should say that instead. That's the Hollywood vampire. That's how vampires are portrayed in books, movies, television shows, all these games that are online and all these clubs and stories and all that sorts of stuff that you see online. This is how the vampire is portrayed. So now that I've talked about the literary and the Hollywood vampire, let's move on to real-life vampires, okay? So they're not maybe as glamorous as what all these movies portray them to be. Do they exist? Oh, yeah, you bet they do. I've even interviewed one on this very podcast way back in Season 4 in 2007. I interviewed a man who called himself Freighter Nyarlathotep. He was an Ardetha, a vampire who had been awakened through sympathetic vampirism, a magical system or by a rare occurrence of epiphany. That's what an Ardetha is. In his words, a made vampire. In fact, he wrote uh, an entire book about how to become a vampire, and it's called Ardeth. The main, the made vampire, Ardeth, the made vampire. It's a magical grimoire documenting, according to the book, for the first time anywhere, practical methods for obtaining full initiation into the vampire community. I'm holding a copy of this book in my hands right now. I've read it from front to back, and while it's far from a great read, it does give give you a a unique look into a fringe category of real-life vampires. Now, if you want to hear the interview that I did with Freighter and Irlathotep, you'll need to become a Parareality patron. And to do that, you need to go to www.patreon.com slash parareality, and you need to become a patron to hear that original 2007 interview that I did with Freighter and Irlathotep. Now, Freighter means brother. And Nyarlathotep is a like demigod or a godlike figure uh, from Cthulhu. So he's not very original with his name. And I'll tell you the book, it is it is it's still available. You can find it on Amazon. Um, it is not an easy read. It's very confusing. At one point, he says that the book is made for uh, a novice, uh, and, and I'm, I'm not quoting this here. I'm paraphrasing it because I can't remember exactly what it says, and I'm not going to take the time right now to look through this book to find these. But basically, he says at one, on, on one page that the book is made for a novice, someone who's looking to uh, fulfill their potential and be something greater than what they are to become a vampire. And then a few pages later, he says that the book is for someone who is an expert and who knows what it is that they're doing. So it's really, it's, 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 it's confusing at, at points, 
I said it's not a uh, it's not a great read, but uh, if you're interested in looking at something that will take vampirism away from the traditional roles that you know it and give you a whole new perspective on how to become a vampire, I suggest you spend a few duckies and and get it off Amazon. It's called Ardeth, the Maid Vampire. The author is Freighter Nyarlathotep. So, uh, yeah, like if you want to hear that that original interview, maybe you should hear the interview before you waste money on the book. I don't know. But go to patreon.com slash parareality, and you can hear the interview in its entirety right there. So what are the different types of real-life vampires? Well, I'll tell you. Now, there's a lot. I am going to go through six of them. Supposedly, there are more than six types of vampires. If you start looking into things, I don't know. Um, different different websites, different people say different things. Some say there's three. Some say there's four. Some say there's you know a dozen or more. It's just it all depends upon how you want to look at it. I look at it from the perspective of real-life vampirism, not taking vampiric lore and combining it in with the real-life vampires. So as far as I'm concerned, there are six types of real-life vampires. So first of all, we have the lifestyle vampires. And now these are the people who just simply admire the aesthetic. They may like vampire movies or or they may be a fan of, you know, Anne Rice and her books or they may even own a set of prosthetic fanes to wear to Victorian, you know, costumes to to nightclubs or Halloween or stuff like that. But at the end of the day, they know they're no different from anyone else because they don't feed off of anyone. They just, they're lifestyle vampires. They like to look like a vampire, but they're, they're not a real one. They don't live like a vampire. Which moves us on to the second type of vampires, which are the blood drinkers. Those are the sanguine vampires. These people must regularly drink fresh human or animal blood to sustain their existence. They cannot be satisfied with blood from a dead animal. It has to be alive, and by some beliefs, can be harmed if the blood is infused with a strong force of things like religion, love, or if the human, if they're consuming from a human, consumed large qualities of uh, garlic before the vampire got to him. Now, this type of vampire is probably the most common and they can be found in the cultures and myths all around the world, from ancient Babylon and Greece to Asia and to the Balkans, where the modern myth of blood-sucking vampires supposedly originated. And according to a lot of myths, one single feeding of blood can provide a vampire with a substance to live off of for up to two weeks. Now, the real-life sanguine vampire is not going to take blood from a human being who does not consent to have their blood taken. There is a pact, a contract that is signed between the vampire and the donor, and the vampire will not take blood from anyone, even the donor, if even the contracted donor, if that person does not want to. So I can be a donor, and I can go to my vampire, and my vampire is like, "Hey, dude, uh, I need to suck some blood from you because I'm not feeling, you know." strongest I'm getting really weak here and I need to suck some blood from you 
And I'd be like, no, dude, not today. I got a date. I'm going to go get laid. And I don't need you poking holes in my neck. You know, so he's SOL, out of luck. He's got to wait. So the modern-day sanguine vampire is not going to take blood from someone who's not willing. Most of them are that way. Now, I'm not going to say that 100% are like that. I think that there is a very, 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 very select few who may not always get permission to drink blood. I think it depends upon um, how desperate they are to obtain it. And vampires, modern-day sanguine vampires, are just like everyone else. You have those that are good, and you have those that are not so good. And the ones that are not so good aren't going to follow the rules. They're not going to follow the rules anyway, so why would they follow the rules of, of vampire lore, right? They're just not going to do it. So... To drink the blood, it is usually um, ritualistic. Um, the area is cleansed where they're going to to drink the blood, and they do not bite the person and leave big tooth marks and rip flesh out of the neck and all that sorts of stuff. Usually they uh, pick a spot somewhere on the shoulder or the neck or wherever. Yeah, I've seen them do it on the, the inside of the thigh. Um, and they'll uh, poke holes in the skin with a needle, uh, like, a, like a, a, a sewing needle that's been sterilized. And it's just a little, little poke, poke like that. And they'll suck a little bit of blood. And how much blood they suck out depends upon how weak they are, how much they feel like they need. Um, it can be from just a few drops up to uh, a tablespoon or maybe even more. I, I don't put that in stone, okay? I am not a sanguine vampire. I'm not a vampire at all, so I'm not professing to, to know everything about this. I'm just telling you what I have learned. Um, and then, once again, after the um, feeding has taken place, the wound is cleaned again. And some sort of covering, like a Band-Aid or something like that, is put over it. And that's it. See you later. Um, so it's not as sexual as what it is in the movies. And it's not as violent as what it is in the movies. And like I said, most sanguine vampires are not going to take blood from a person who hasn't consented to give the blood to them. And most of them have at least one donor who is like they're contractually obligated. There's a contract that's signed literally between the donor and the vampire that says, these are the rules. This is what I will and will not do. And it's, it's pretty sterile, you know, it's at least as sterile as they can get it. So now we move along to the third type of real vampire, which, which are psychic vampires. Now, this type of vampire doesn't physically harm their their victim or their willing donors, but they extract like life force type energy from people, which enables them to continue living. This kind of uh, psionic ability, I guess, can work with both uh, single victims and by extracting the life force from crowds of people as well. And most often, the people who are, who are having their psychic energy sucked from them, they don't even notice that this type of vampire is feeding on them. And the effects of being fed on like that can be short or long-term fatigue, doesn't really lead to death, but it can leave one feeling drained, although not immediately. Um, now, I did, back when I was researching vampires, I did, uh, I've done more than one show on vampires, and way back, a long time ago, when I was researching stuff for vampires, I actually did an experiment to where I tried psychic vampirism. Stupid, I know, right? I was like, I, I'm going to see if this works. And I did not notice that um, 
I was able to suck anyone's life force out of them. But I had not had any training or anything like that either. I was just trying this on my own, so I don't know. I probably didn't know what I was doing, which could have been dangerous as well. So it was very stupid of me to try this, and I don't recommend that you you know, go out and say, well, I'm going to be a psychic vampire. Because I was doing this as an, an experiment type of deal. I didn't really do it for long term. I just did it for a little while, a few weeks, and I didn't notice where I was able to suck anyone's life force or anything like that or get anyone's energy. Another term for these vampires are energy vampires. They can be called psychic vampires, energy vampires, psi vampires. Um, I said these people, um, a lot of these people um, will have donors as well, but a lot of them don't either. And there's no physical contact with you. They just suck all your energy. A great example of one is uh, Colin from What We Do in the Shadows. If you've never seen that FX uh, series, there's a series on the FX channel. It's called What We Do in the Shadows, and it's about a group of vampires that are living together, and one of them is a psychic vampire, and he's constantly sucking the energy out of everyone. And it's, it's, of course, it's a comedy series, and it's pretty funny, but psychic vampirism is not funny at all. These people can be um, anyone. Some people are psychic vampires and don't even know it. They have no idea that that's what they're doing. If there's anyone that you're ever around and they li- it literally every time they come into the room, it feels like they just suck the energy out of the room and everybody dreads to see this person. And you're like, oh, God, you know, and then the person leaves and you're like, oh, Jesus Christ, I need to take a nap or something like that. That person's probably a psychic vampire. And there are protection spells that you can do to protect yourself from these psychic vampires. And I'm not going to say a, 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 a protection spell for psychic vampirism on the air, but if you want to know what it is, you can call me, 615 615- Six nine two one one seven zero and ask me or just send me an email sandman at parareality.com tweet me at parareal radio get on the Facebook page on the parareality Facebook page and ask me that way I'll, I'll give you an answer I'm just not going to say it here on the air and then uh, we have the fourth type which is a hybrid vampire and this that's just simply a combination of both the sanguine and the psychic vampire so they get Basically, they're trying to get the best of both worlds. They prefer to suck the blood, but if they can't get to a donor, if they can't get any blood, they're going to suck your energy out. And then we have empathic or elemental vampires. Now, this type of vampire feeds on not the energy for people, but the emotion of people around them. And most often, positive energies such as happiness and love, but they can also feed from negative energies like fear and anger. Now, vampires like this that feed from like the darker emotions are often responsible for causing these emotions, like scaring the victim. But the rest of empathic vampires simply feed from the, the currently present emotions that are present around them. So they don't try to create specific emotions. They're not going to try to create happiness and love necessarily. Just whatever the emotions are around them, they're going to feed on it. Elemental vampires are similar to the empathic vampire, but they feed on the natural elements of wind and lightning. Very, very rare, these vampires, especially the elemental. The empathic vampire is a little bit more common. And they kind of go hand in hand with the psychic vampire, but you got to draw a distinct line because the psychic vampire feeds on energy from the physical energy from the person, whereas the empathic is the one that's getting feeding from the emotions of the person and not the energy. So an empathic vampire is not going to leave you feeling drained and like you have to take a nap. And then we approach the Sixth and last vampire, which is 
very interesting. It is a sexual vampire. A sexual vampire sustains his or her life by absorbing sexual life force energies from their partners. And these partners usually are willing most of the time. Uh, they get this sexual life force energy most often during a moment of orgasm. And they do their feeding either psychically or, and this is pretty gross, by consuming bodily fluids. Insert your own bodily fluid joke there. The most famous mythical sexual vampire is a uh, succubus, which is a female, or an incubus, which is a male. And the uh, they just feed off of your sexual energies. The succubus or their incubus will come to you and you think it's a dream or something like that, and you are having sex, and it's just this great sex, and you have this intense sexual experience, and you have this great orgasm, but what's happening is the succubus or incubus is sucking your sexual energy away from you. Now, obviously, you have to take the succubus and the incubus for what it is. Do they exist or do they not? I'm not here to debate that, and I'm not saying that all vampires are succubi or incubi. That's just one version of them. The most sexual vampires are just like me and you, except they live to get their energy from sexual encounters. And most of their victims or, or their donors are exactly that, donors, they're contracted either by verbal or written agreement. The incubus and the succubus do not do that. They're more demonic and they don't, they're, they're not looking for a willing donor. They're going to take it from you regardless whether or not you want it, want them to or not. So the sexual vampire um, probably piqued your interest. And I'm sure you'll be doing a little bit more research on that. Like, oh, I want to become a sexual vampire. It's, it, you know, if you want to become a vampire, you don't just say, I'm going to become a vampire and then you're a vampire. There are rules to being a vampire depending upon what kind of vampire you want to be, one of these six types of vampire. So are vampires real? Well, you bet they are. Do they drink blood? Well, some do. Are they immortal? No, they aren't. But then again, it really doesn't matter if vampires are some undead ghoul without a soul or some sexy undead person with a conscience or even some glittery, glowing-skinned, immortal teenager who's concerned about his soul. What matters is that there are actually vampires. They're living among us, possibly even in your city. And they can be dangerous if they take from you without your consent, but most of the time, they're not. The majority of them, in fact, are not dangerous. 99% of them are not dangerous. They're kind, everyday people, just like you and me. And the latest stats about them say that there are currently over 5,000 vampires living here in the United States alone. I don't know about the world. Just what I've read said over 5,000 living here in the United States. So perhaps there's a coven of them in your city. You, I don't know. The only way to find out is to go looking for them. But unfortunately, they don't like to be found. And that, ladies and gentlemen, does it for this episode of Parareality. I hope that you enjoyed tonight's episode. Let me know what your ideas and thoughts about it are. Send an email, sandman at parareality.com, or get in touch with me through my social media accounts, Parareality on Facebook or Parareal Radio on Twitter. You can call me on the studio line, 615-692-1170. And don't forget to go to parareality.com. That's my website to keep up on the latest paranormal news from all around the world. That content is updated daily. You can also shop in the Parareality store and watch some of the terrible videos that are made for the show over the years. And You can follow my social media accounts. If you, if you don't have 
Facebook if you're one of the two people in the world that doesn't have Facebook or maybe you're not on Twitter. You can just follow my social media accounts by going to parareality.com, scroll all the way down the bottom of the homepage, and you can see my social media feeds. Um, social media is where you, you can find out a lot about what's happening by si- behind the scenes here of the podcast because that's where I post a lot of interesting articles and show topics and other interesting stuff like my travels and investigations and my general thoughts on the world and stuff like that. So really, you know, parareality.com is it's, it's really your one-stop shopping for everything that's happening in the parareality world and the world of the paranormal. Uh, I've got a news feed there. That content is updated just about daily. It has paranormal news from all over the world, the latest headlines and the latest paranormal news. And there's a tab that says Extras. You click on that tab and you can go shop in the Parareality Radio store, which I've got a whole bunch of new, i got a new store, a whole bunch of new items in the store. would appreciate it if you'd check it out, buy something, a, a T-shirt or a hat or a mug or or two just to help support the show. I would really appreciate that. Um, and like I say, you can watch the show videos and stuff like that. I've got a couple of new videos that I've posted up there uh, from uh, Travis Taylor and uh, Nick the Man Pope um, that I've uh, acquired and uh, got those up on the parareality.com page. So uh, make sure you guys, you guys check it out. And the podcast, Parareality, and you can hear me on whatever your favorite podcast platform is. I'm available everywhere. You name it, I'm just about on it. So you like to listen to podcasts. You're listening to this podcast here. So you do like podcasts, I'm assuming. So what whatever podcast platform you like, I'm there. If you've got someone, a friend that you think would like the show, tell them to look them up on their favorite, look me up on their favorite podcast platform. I'm like, I'm all over the place. And if you have a smart speaker, you can listen to the show there too. If you've got any of the already mentioned podcast skills from your favorite podcast platform on your device, just say, play the Parareality podcast and bam, there you are listening to me talk to you. It's fun times. <laughs> oh, God, I'm crazy. So I now have a Patreon account for the podcast, and I'd love it if you'd sign up to be a patron. There are three tiers of support, and all are extremely affordable, like $5 a month or less. And each level offers exclusive content, along with the ability to help create podcast episodes and even the chance to be a guest on the show or a co-host. So to learn more, head on over to patreon.com slash parareality. 100% of the proceeds from Patreon goes back into producing quality content for this podcast. I make no money off of this. And uh, every dime that I get from my store, my merch, and from Patreon would go right back into producing this show. Everyone, thank you for letting me come into your speaker this evening. The next episode of Pair Reality is going to be on Friday, October 16th at 8 p.m. Central U.S. time. So make sure you turn on, tune in, and find out. I hope that this podcast opens up your mind to new ways of thinking, expands your consciousness, and produces a change in the way you see the world. If you wish to change You must lift the veil of ignorance that has been cast over your eyes. Only then will you see the true power of the universe. I hope you have a wonderful evening, a wonderful weekend, and I'll see you again in two weeks. If you wish to change, you must first lift the veil of ignorance that has been cast over your eyes. Only then will you see the true power of the universe.